main idea of what we're going to talk about tonight uh, is that hell is a real place of eternal, conscious suffering, and hell is filled with real people. And right off the bat, let's look at a statement from Wayne Grudem, and it's on compassion and hell. And here's what he says. If our hearts are never moved with deep sorrow when we contemplate this doctrine, then there is a serious deficiency in our spiritual and emotional sensibilities. The reason it is hard for us to think of the doctrine of hell is because God has put in our hearts a portion of His own love for people created in His image, even His love for sinners who rebel against Him. I think that is a fantastic statement that if... If we are not moved like Jesus, when it says that Jesus was moved with compassion, it didn't mean that he just had a breakdown, but he had a strong compassion that moved him to action. Have you ever had that happen when you study about hell or maybe hear a message on it or really you're studying God's word and, and it's just like this is a real place of conscious eternal suffering and there are real People who go there forever. Talk to me about maybe some of the reactions that that come in your mind and in your heart when when we think about, even if it's just for 20 seconds, about the reality of hell. Okay. All right. I remember being in high school, and then as a senior, there was one of my classmates who had been out drinking and in a car accident and died, and it just really hit me. I mean, it's someone I knew very, very well that I never, ever stopped to talk about Christ. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember just living mm-hmm. in guilt for a really, really long time because I felt like, you know, I was responsible. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he landed in hell. Mm-hmm. Anybody else identify with that? I can. There's a guy, and we cut grass for in high school, and his name was um, his name was Johnny, and he was you know he was an alcoholic, was not saved, wouldn't go to church, and my dad kept saying, you know, let's go visit Johnny, let's go visit Johnny. At the time, I wasn't saved, but I understood these things because I was raised in the church, what hell is, and and I just put it off and put it off and put it off, and guess what? One day, I went to cut the grass, and and he had died, and and that those are things that um, I think that we all at one time or another can look back with regret with people that we have known, but today is a new day. So I hope when we get to the end of this, that this will be, um, and not in any type of a twisted sense, but this would inspire us out of the compassion, like Grudem says, because God has put in our hearts a portion of His own love for people created in His image. Just the care and compassion. I mean, I respect very so much for, for serving as a fireman, I mean, they go into the fire to risk for people who would otherwise be killed. John, with his, I mean, he's got all sorts of awards for saving people's life and doing some very, very courageous, bold things. And that's something I think that when we look at, at heroes, and I would use that term for these two guys, even though they would never say that, they're very humble, um, within society saving people's life. Boy, if you magnify that a millionfold, when we share the gospel, when we're faithful to represent Christ to people, and God uses that seed and they come to repentance and faith, we have just been used by Almighty God to snatch somebody from the fire of hell. And not only that, but often when people get saved, they influence the people that they know. 
But often hell has been used in, I think, an illegitimate way. We're about to look at Luke 16. Yes. I've got a question more quick on this. Do you think that we're held accountable once we die and we go before God? Because we don't take that opportunity to tell them about Christ and what awaits them if they don't, they don't accept Him? Um, we covered that a few weeks ago in the Bema Seat Judgment, um, where believers will be um, held accountable for the grace that God gave them, the regeneration, being saved, how we use that for His glory. And the metaphor is that what we've done for God, the right things, the right motives, will be like jewels, and that which we've done out of selfish motives or disobedience will be like chaff, and it will be burned up, and only what's going to, you know, whatever was done for Christ... Like we had a thing in our bathroom growing up that says, uh, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That type of, of um, you know, motif. But exactly what those rewards are, I'm not sure. They're pictured as, you know, crowns in some sense. That's what the band uh, casting crowns will cast all those crowns before the feet of Jesus. But ultimately, um, it's not it's not a judgment in the sense of God is judging us. It's, it's basically um, a way that... that Everything is set straight. And I think the most powerful aspect of us being held accountable um, through that judgment before we enter into the presence of God in heaven is this. Believers sometimes have problems with other believers. Church splits, divorces, things like that. So you have this person, they can't stand this person. Are they just going to walk in unchanged into the presence of God? And if he changes them that much, they won't even really be themselves, right? Because some people have been so overwhelmed with bitterness. But what the Bemis seat will do, it will bring all of us to our knees and, and to be reminded once again that it is grace and just to be absolutely humbled and say, here's, and basically let, let us know what our life has been about. And it may be, it may be shocking for some people, it may be, um, on the other end, shocking the other way. So, yes, I definitely think that we're that we're held accountable in Scripture. For what we don't do. Yeah, that would be like a sin of omission. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good question. Uh, Luke sixteen. This is where Jesus is talking about Lazarus and um, uh, the rich man. It says in sixteen twenty two, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, cool my tongue, for I am in anguish or torment in this flame. Alright? So, what is in hell? What realities are there according to this text? Number one, there is memory. That should cause rational people to shudder. He remembered. Remember, he remembered his brothers that were still there. Not only that, but he was conscious. It was not a soul sleep. It was not annihilationism. He actually was conscious of what was going on. Also, he had the physical sensation of being able to feel pain. Um, And there were flames in hell that caused torment. Now, some people may debate, are these literal flames? Are they metaphorical flames? Whatever they are, and I believe it's literal because that's the, that's the picture there. And once again, if a liberal comes and tries to undercut your faith in the Bible, they say, no, it's just metaphorical flames. And we respond with saying, so are you saying that hell is so terrible that the only earthly picture Jesus could give is fire? And if that's the best picture that he could give by being a metaphor, they would be that much more indescribable. So are you really saying that hell is so bad that human language can't even capture it. 
And you can kind of turn the tables if somebody tries to undercut your faith in the literalness and the truth of God's word. And also there's regret. There's regret in hell. I've made, I've made some dumb decisions in my life. And there's always that regret. And regret stinks, doesn't it? But we cannot go spend all the money on the credit card in this life, right? We can cut that joker up, pay it off. We cannot, you know, go and make this bad relational, we, you know, decision. We cannot go and respond in anger. We can correct those things through the power of God, but in hell, there's no chance. Um, and then there's no, there's no hope. <clears throat> Revelation 14.10 gives another picture. It says that he will also drink of the wine of the, of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur or brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up how long? Forever. How long would it be for the Bible to say forever? Long stinking time. And then just so we don't miss it and ever, and to be even more clear, they have no rest. How long? Day or night? These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Remember when Jesus was in the garden and he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, the cup of God's wrath, that symbolic drinking and experiencing God's wrath. This is what the Bible says will be poured out upon all those who rejected Jesus Christ. So what is not in hell? The fruit of the spirit is not in hell. In hell, there will be no love. Imagine that. Be no love, no peace, no faithfulness. Nothing good in hell. No kindness. No self-control. Nothing. No longer the mercy of God. Because even Jesus says, right in Matthew chapter 5, that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, and He sends the sun to rise upon the evil and the good. That even a lost person, a God-hating atheist like Christopher Hitchens, you know, who just went to his grave with just vile words about God and about us who follow the Lord... And just hate within his heart saying, you know, I hate God. Even he experienced here the mercy of God. But in hell, none of that is going to be there. There will be no friendship in hell. How many of you have ever heard uh, somebody say, well, I don't want to go to heaven because all my friends are going to hell. I'm going to go down there and hang out with them. Has anybody ever heard somebody? Okay. I've actually heard heard that a a number uh, of times. Maybe it's the pagan places that I've lived in the past. I don't know. But... uh, when a person says, I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are, a lot of times that's people's way of trying to diffuse an awkward situation. Because usually when you talk to a person who doesn't trust in Christ, they get very convicted, don't they? They feel guilty. I'm like, oh no, is this good person going to start preaching to me? I know I should follow Christ. I know my life is messed up. So let me throw out this kind of funny one-liner. But... I think it's very important that we help people to understand that in hell it's going to be absolute loneliness. Absolute loneliness. We never find a picture in hell of people congregating together. And even more so if people could congregate together <clears throat> in hell and try to put out those paintings that we see of hell to where you know people are all together and some are climbing on rocks and others are sliding down into pits. Even if we could, the conditions within hell would, would destroy any possibility of a good time. And I think this is, this is the worst thing about hell. In hell, there's no hope. I know Spurgeon wrote a sermon on, <clears throat> on hell, and he says, 
And he's kind of liter- very descriptive about this with some rhetorical device- devices. He says, on, on every chain in hell, there is written the word forever. When they look upon the ceilings of hell, there is written the word forever. When they look, all they see is the word forever. Dot, 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 hell is forever. And I, I don't know, but for me, when I thought about eternity as a kid, you know how you hear statements like forever and ever, and I would think about eternity, it was kind of scary to me. Can anybody identify with that? When you think of something that goes on and on and on, and then it goes on and on, for, for us, the only frame of reference we have is beginning, progress, the end in the beginning and progress and end of something else. But in hell, it's going to be <clears throat> moments and succession, continuing moments of suffering, but there's never the hope of it ending. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Girl, you've got fear. Mm-hmm. When I think about some of them, I mean, there's been several people that I've, I hope they're not there, but I'm afraid they are. That brings fear to me because I <clears> think <throat> about the times. Maybe I did witness, but I did continue to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And it does bring fear to me because I think, you know, Lord, we get so busy and wrapped up with the world today mm-hmm. that right. when you start to think about eternity, I mean, my mind, it's just, it's forever. And I, I just think, Lord, if you're down there, and I mean, they will never know anything. There is no hope for them. So that's where, my, that's where when I say fear, that's sure. what I was relating with. I do feel for them, but I mean, that's not going to save them. Mm. Anybody else can identify with that? I, I'm, I'm right there with you. This, this is not something that we just, you know, what are you going to study in your Bible? What, what plan? Boy, I'm going to do a 19-week study on hell. It's just, I mean, we do that by necessity sometimes, and some people for informational purposes. Well, I tell you, the, the Lord convicts me fairly often about being too diplomatic about these things. Um, people, you know, I told you guys, got to message on Facebook the other week, just a guy informing me and trying to reassure me and convince me and make sure that this, you know, wild, young, conservative preacher understands that the Bible is not the Word of God. Just if you can just understand that, you know, everything's going to be good in the world and so forth and so on. And often, I I don't know about y'all, but I I want to address people's questions, but I think sometimes... It's effective to just step out of that. Not that we shouldn't address people's questions, but just plead with people. And it may be weird in our culture, but when we look back at the Old Testament, the prophets, they pled with people, please repent, turn to God, the New Testament. I mean, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, say, I long to bring you to myself as a mother. Uh, Mother hen does her chicks. I mean, just that that picture of a loving uh, parental figure. And we don't see in God's Word often what I can easily do, and that's be academic about it, that's being diplomatic about it. Oh, I understand where you're coming from. And just be so respectful, like someone who's going to deny God's Word actually has a good argument. They don't. They're in danger. 
And so if y'all would just pray for me that even when I talk to people who have those academic, you know, intellectual questions, that it would put more heart into it and just plead with people. Because I'm 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 tired of being of doing it that way with some people. And um, just to go the straight heart of the issue, say, bro, I don't care if you're a into Scientology or whatever your big word is that you hide behind. Please trust Christ, and, and so. Um, but that's I appreciate you sharing that, Sharon. Um, so here's here's a question that will come up for us: Is hell simply a metaphor for the grave? Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come to your door, <clears throat> if they find out you're a Baptist, often they go to the text in Ecclesiastes where it says that the dead know nothing. All right. And then there's also the liberal theologians um, who would like some mainline. And it, it depends uh, which which type of church it is. But they will say that there is no literal hell, there is no literal heaven, that Jesus just came to be a good example to us. All right. And the younger generation has caught hold and they said, okay, if there is no heaven, there is no hell. And I go to a mainline church, not like a Southern Baptist or, you know, a biblical group. Then if Christianity is nothing more than morality then why do I need to get up early on Sunday and come into a building and sit upon a wooden pew and hear somebody who I may not even identify with all with at all tell me how to be a good person? I'm a good person because my truth is my truth and his truth is his truth. You see how it breaks down? Once you compromise on God's word, then there's no reason to follow God in any uh, actual or real way. But um, here's here's a... Where the word that they'll throw out, they'll throw out the word annihilationism, being annihilated once you um, die. The position is that the wicked will suffer God's wrath for a time and will then cease to exist. Let's talk about that. What do you think about that? They'll say, well, there is some punishment, but hell is just going to be for a little bit because an eternal hell is inconsistent with God's loving nature. And they just drop that bomb on you. Any any quick draw responses come to mind? I heard a pastor on television say that God would never subject people to unending punishment. Mm. If you're unsaved, you're, you cease to this. He quoted a scripture about, um, I don't remember what it was about, going up like smoke. But anyway, mm. there are even pastors who... Here's a couple of texts we'll look at. But basically the argument here for people who say that hell is a metaphor for the grave and that annihilationism happens, the person is annihilated who doesn't trust God, is they say an eternal hell is an overkill. All right, Here's some of the texts that they use to support that. Philippians 3, uh, 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. First Thessalonians 5, 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The fallacy of the people who say that a person is annihilated upon death if they haven't trusted Christ is how do you think they translate this word destruction? Or what? how do they apply it rather? They don't translate it. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Okay, right. Now, here, here's your, we don't even have to go Greek, all right? We don't even have to bust out the lexicon. 
let's say something happens to this building. All right, tornado comes through Rocky Mount, levels it. Does the building cease to exist, or was the building decimated, brought low, taken down, removed from its place of prominence? What well, doesn't cease to exist, right? Whenever something is destroyed in the biblical sense, let's go Old Testament. And I so appreciate Jonathan and Ben teaching this class on the Old Testament. I hope it's going to help people to read the New Testament and the Old Testament better. But in the Old Testament, you've got this picture of destruction. Sodom and Gomorrah. It was destroyed. And destroy doesn't mean that it ceases to exist, but it simply means that God brings judgment. That's the picture. Okay? Whenever we see destroyed, it means to bring to bring judgment. I think we may have I think we have our first ever technical issue. I'll just pick up one of these. Sorry about that. Okay, we are there um, right below what is annihilationism. And let's see here. We've got Second Thessalonians two nine. Now let's turn over there. Second Second Thessalonians two nine. And it says, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, and them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. The word perish there does not mean to cease to exist. It means to be judged by God. And then Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved for the fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. Alright? That doesn't mean that it's going to cease to exist. Alright? That's one of the biggest um, fallacies within this, within this um, response. So here's one of the things that we can say to Jehovah's Witnesses when they bring up Ecclesiastes. Is that the context of Ecclesiastes, what is the phrase that Solomon keeps on repeating? There's basically two. Yes. Alright? And what is his frame of reference for everything that he says into the, in the book until he gets to like the last chapter? Everything under what? Under the sun. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, he is saying this is life without God. And he comes to that point where he says that life is pointless. Like you said, Ben, vanity of vanity, emptiness of emptiness. It's all empty. That, uh, that atheistic philosopher, is a French guy, Albert Camus, he says the only philosophical question that remains is should I commit suicide? Now think about that. If there is no God, there is no ultimate meaning in life, then really what does it matter? 
What does it matter if I live? What does it matter if I have a family? Eventually, there's going to be heat death in the universe. There's no God. And then the, you know, the, 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 it's going to spin out of orbit. And then there's going to be, ultimately, it's going to go to zero degrees Kelvin. And everything's going to be meaningless. The universe will be utterly silent and dead. Nothing means anything. So, when Solomon writes, the dead know nothing, he's speaking in the context of, if God doesn't exist... This is how it is. But when he gets to the end of the book, he comes full circle back to his faith in God. So just for them to pull that verse out and say this means that the dead actually know nothing is, is not the right way to interpret the Bible. Um, and then also we can respond when people say that hell is a picture of the grave to say, well, the picture, um, especially in the book of Revelation to where it's fire, um, that and torment forever and ever. That's not a place you want to be. John the Baptist in Luke chapter three says that he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's not a place that that you that you want to be. Jesus continually in his parables speaks about the wicked being thrown into outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a place that you want to be. And none of those things point towards annihilation. Or soul sleep, right? It's a place of consciousness. If, and here's the thing, if I come to the Bible and I say, boy, I've heard that the Bible teaches that hell is a real place of conscious suffering for eternity with real people, that I just don't want to believe that, guess what you can do? And guess what I can do? We can make the Bible say anything we want. You notice that? I mean, it's just like the oldest preacher joke in the world. Guy picked up his Bible and it says that Judas went out and hung himself. Then he flipped over and he found a verse that says, go thou and do likewise, right? Like that's the oldest preacher joke in the book. But that's not the way that we actually interpret um, interpret the Bible. Any any comments on that? Questions? Now let's go to the eternality of hell. Um, we understand, number one, here's how we can know from, from Scripture that Hell is eternal. Number one, God's nature is eternal. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So think about it like this. If God's... um, Let me ask it this way. Will there ever be a point in the future, in eternity, when God's mercy will be used up? Or His grace? Who He is? No. Let's talk about in heaven. Will there ever be a point in heaven to where God has been holy for a thousand years... But then on that 1,001 day, God says, you know what, I've been holy for a long time, but I'm just going to kind of give that up and kind of recharge and go out and do my thing. I mean, is there... The attributes of God don't fade, right? Like grace and love. So if God is whole, if God is, doesn't have a split personality, then that means that God's attributes such as justice which is also a form of love, and God's wrath against sin, those things are never going to go away either. So if God is eternally set against sin, then we know that hell would be eternal. And not only that, but we know that God's nature is just. God will not give anyone a free pass, and the way that we get our forgiveness is because Jesus took it for us, took our wrath. And took our sin for us. And then number three is that people actually continue to to sin in hell. There's a lot of Bible scholars that will understand when Jesus says weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth is not so much 
a sign of pain as it is of defiant anger. You ever seen a kid, right, just get so angry and defiant with their parent, they just stomp their feet and clench their fist and just, ah, that type of of a picture. And that's what, what Jesus is giving in his parables. And also, I just put an asterisk here by this note, is that hell doesn't change a sinful heart. It doesn't. So not only does God have to punish the sin, and if it's a sin against an eternal God, and the only way of having that forgiven is through a perfect sacrifice, but you've rejected the perfect sacrifice, then that sin will continually be judged until it is paid. And if um, this is not in the notes, but it may be good to write down by point number two there, God's nature is just, is Luke uh, 12.59 where Jesus is giving an illustration about debt against God, and even taking out a loan um, here, and he says, you will not depart until you have paid the last penny. And that the context there is in judgment. In other words, God's judgment will be on a person until the penalty has been paid. If a person dies without Christ, the penalty will never be paid, which is another reason why hell would be, would be eternal. Any any questions there? Now the facts of the final judgment here as we as we close it out. Number one, um, unbelievers will be judged. Let's go to Revelation chapter twenty. You've been holding that for a little bit there in verse number um, eleven. Let's start there. And I saw a great white throne, and that in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. Small and great stand before God and the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Pretty pretty hardcore, right? Pretty final. Pretty thorough. When it says that, that, the, that the books were open, um, almost all theologians and Bible scholars that I have read, um, they would translate that to correspond with all of those other scriptures there. If you want to go look those up. We don't have time to go through all of them tonight, but that the lost people are judged and there will be degrees of punishment within hell. When Jesus um, did the, the miracles there in Bethsaida, he said that if these works had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So it will be more tolerable for them. Now think about this. Go back and we'll, we'll touch on this this Sunday. Talking about homosexuality, Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get to that passage. But boy, I mean, that was some heavy judgment by God. And Jesus is saying it will be more tolerable for all the people from Sodom and Gomorrah that warranted God basically nuking the city, so to speak. It will be more tolerable for them than you on the day of judgment. And here's here's the point. The more revelation of himself, the more truth a person knows about, the more times the gospel has been presented, the more they know about God. If they don't respond to that in obedience and faith and repentance, it's more on them. You see, 
It's more of a burden of proof is on them. So there will be, according to Jesus, and one of the biggest ones there is in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says they are laying up for themselves, kind of like a hoarder. Y'all see those shows about people hoarding stuff? I mean, it's just crazy, right? They keep adding and keep compiling. But that's the picture of a person who continues to live in sin against God. They continue to compile that, that sin until, until judgment day. And also, um, angels will be judged. Uh, we're not sure, and Wayne Grudem says this, he says this means, and he's talking about 1 Corinthians 6.3 and 2 Peter 2.4. 2 um, Corinthians 6.3 says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? And here's what Grudem says. He says, This means that at least the rebellious angels or demons will be subject to judgment on that day as well. So we're not sure if the angels that followed God after the rebellion will be judged for their faithfulness, but we know for sure, um, I'm not sure if we have the note, but in Jude it also re- uh, refers to the angels which rebelled that are held in chains until the time of judgment. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but they will be held accountable as well. And in some sense, we will be able to be with God in that, in that judgment. And then finally, let's, we, we can apply this. Number one. Uh, understanding the final judgment satisfies our inward sense of a need for justice in the world. <clears throat> you ever seen a TV show and there maybe was some terrible thing done to somebody or studying um, what's going on in the Islamic world or what Saddam Hussein did to 300,000 Kurds or so that he murdered? And there's just something that rises within you and you said, this needs to be dealt with. The bad guy needs to be found and justice needs to be served. Understanding that when it's all said and done, God's thorough will be, God's judgment will be final, but it will be thorough. To understand that nobody in the end gets away with anything. Now the Lord offers grace, right? And that's, and that is the best news. He offers grace for whoever would come to Him in faith, but when judgment is given at the end, it will be absolutely thorough. And then secondly, understanding the final judgment enables us to forgive others freely. Romans twelve nineteen says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How do you think that would affect our view of forgiveness, understanding that God has justice taken care of? As opposed to, not really understanding that God will judge the world in righteousness. How would that affect our relationships if we don't understand the concept of the final judgment? Right. Yeah. Right. And we know as believers that it's not so much that we have to forgive, but we're able to forgive. But And we've referenced this many times. Revelation chapter 7, the believers who are there in heaven with God ask the Lord. And they say, how long will it be until you take vengeance? Upon whom? Upon the people still on the earth who murdered them or martyred them. So if believers who are in heaven with God can ask God, God, how long is it going to be until you take them out? 
then we need to take a step back and understand that it's not necessarily wrong. In fact, it may be the right thing for us to want justice, but we understand that God is the one who applies the justice and not Jeff in you know, a Clint Eastwood fashion. And I think that's where often we, we get in trouble in relationships and such because we say, boy, I don't want him to get away with it. And then we kind of take up the mantle of judgment. Uh, number three, uh, understanding the final judgment provides a motive for righteous living. So several of us we've shared about people that we've known um, that we should probably have shared the gospel with, but we didn't. How, <clears throat> how would the reality of hell influence us, motivate us, to live differently or to live rightly for the glory of God? And I thought about that too, with that, with that guy during that time. Not only did I not witness to him, but I wonder if he ever saw Christ in my life. Hmm. Hmm. That's, a, that's a great point. I thought you. Um, I, I've told the Lord on different occasions, you know, and you know how you hear about preachers doing crazy things that bring disrepute on the church, upon the gospel, and it kind of gives people, like it gives, you know, David gives the heathen um, a cause to blaspheme the name of God. I've told the Lord before, and then this this may be wrong of me. I, don't know, I just I just pray it. That's when it comes from from my heart. I say, Lord, if there ever comes a point in my life to where I am tempted to do something um, morally that would be totally off base, <clears throat> or financially that would be totally um, corrupt, I mean, one of those things. You all know what I'm talking about. It covers the whole gamut. I say, Lord, if there ever comes a point where my heart is so hard that I will not respond to your voice and say, I I will reject that temptation, I will run from that temptation. If I just come to a place of deadness, I say, Lord, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. I heard one pastor tell of another pastor that he knew, and he was driving to Mississippi to meet up um, with a woman who was not his wife. And he says, for six hours, the Holy Spirit told me, you need to turn around, turn around. He says, but I rejected the voice of the Holy Spirit for six hours. And I went there and I committed adultery, lost my family, lost my ministry. And that stuff like that, I mean, I praise the Lord. He's continued to keep me, you know, pure in that regard. And I don't have any plans to do that. But you know what I'm talking about? Taking into account our own depravity. And here's my prayer. I say, Lord, if I ever get to that point and I have not responded to your voice, would you kill me before I do it? I'm not suicidal. I say, because far be it from me that if I ever get to a low point in my Christianity that Jeff's sin causes the gospel to be blasphemed and people that I've led to the Lord and preached to and been to mission trips for, if they were to hear of something like that, how would that affect, like you're saying, Jonathan, how would that affect their faith? And uh, I mean, that, that stuff, Once I, and I'd say, Lord, take me out. And I, once again, that's, that's just maybe being a little bit too honest, but I'm just going to be real with you guys and say that, mm, I just, do you understand? I mean, it's just, no, I don't think that, that anyone is ever important enough to put their own desires in front of the gospel, including myself. 
And so I think that, that this, what we studied tonight, should be a cause for us to say, Lord, would you just keep me close, like Pastor Johnny Hunt says, keep me close to you and keep me clean. And that's, 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 that's my prayer, and I hope that's the prayer for our church. And finally, number four, um, it under, understanding the final judgment provides a powerful motive for evangelism. Knowing that Jonathan Edwards' picture of they are suspended like a spider on a thread above, uh, above a fire. That's them. He said if the flame singes simply the thread, it would be consumed. And that's what that's, he, see, here's, here's, here's the awesome part of this. When we get plugged into a gospel believing, gospel preaching, people loving, all people, all classes, all, you know, ethnicities, socioeconomic, whatever. When we get plugged into that and we support that through, through friendship, through encouragement, through giving finances, through prayer support, it's kind of like a battleship, right? It takes a while to turn one of those around if they've gotten off course. But when you get a battleship pointed in the right direction, it can do some serious damage against the enemy. And that's one of the greatest things about being plugged in with a group of believers, what we call local local church. So finally, last uh, discussion question here is, is there anyone who has wronged you in the past and whom you have had difficulty forgiving? Does the doctrine of final judgment help you to be more able to forgive that person? I I would, I would think so. And, and here's, uh, for me, the, the main thing. Um, that I understand, and I hope, I hope it's more and more every day, that if it were not for God's grace, and this is not just one of these things we say in church, if it were not for God's grace, I would have been justly in hell a long time ago. I rejected the gospel a lot before the Lord ever changed my heart. And so when I interact with people who may not be where they need to be with the Lord, or they may be in a state of disobedience, they may say things that are rude, they may not treat me the way that we should treat people, understanding that everything that we have talked about, it has Jeff's name all over it, but when Jesus died on the cross and when he saved me, his blood covered everything that I had ever done. So that should motivate me to have at least a little grace with people who are like I was for a long, long time. And I think that when we allow that slowly but steadily to permeate our hearts, that sets us free from the tit-for-tat relationships that so often we have even in church today. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. But the second that we have collision in some level, it's so easy to cut people off. Let's, let us be like the Lord and just experience what, it, what it's like to be offended but give grace. Not just to friends, but to enemies. And so, um, in closing, this doctrine of hell, I think just for me, devotionally and personally, it causes me uh, brokenness. To know that the Lord had so much grace that he saved me from this. And not only that, but he allows me with you guys to put together our lives and helping other people be saved from it. And so those people that we, probably most of us, if we're honest, looking back, that we should have shared the gospel with, that we didn't for whatever reason or we didn't go far enough, let that be motivation. In a few weeks, we're going to look at what Paul says in chapter 3. So powerful. 
Forgetting what lies behind, stretching forward, right? Looking, looking at the goal. Because Satan will want us to be caught up with all the baggage of the past. Let's understand, let that serve as motivation. God is sovereign, but let it serve as motivation to say, Lord, let me be a changed person for the future. And let his grace do that, because Satan will want us to replay those old VHS tapes, and that will keep us mentally preoccupied in the past, where Jesus says, look forward to what I can do in the future.